Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Robert Ellie. Robert is the owner of the Chop House Braintree, a 60-cover restaurant situated in Braintree, Essex, which serves AA rosette standard food. Ellie also has a number of other business interests alongside that, including a coffee shop which opened in early 2020, shortly before the COVID-19 lockdown was called, and he also chairs the Braintree Town Partnership, a local organisation which aims to unite residents in support of the local high street. Um, Robert, very warm welcome to yourself this morning, and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. No problem, my pleasure, absolutely my pleasure. It's a real pleasure to welcome you onto the airwaves and normally we would dive straight into the uh, the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus on this show. But just considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation in the UK at the moment, I feel it is appropriate that we start there um, because it has proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders within all walks of life, be that business, communities, organisations, governments. But for yourselves, Robert, just how has it affected you and your businesses being in the hospitality industry? Um, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it certainly caused a, a huge amount of, 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 of anxiety over the past kind of, you know, what, six, seven, eight months. Um, but at the same time, um, I'm sort of, I suppose I'm starting to the general, um, the general population as much as, you know, I've just really from sort of day one, I've kind of really seen it just as a challenge. Um, it, it is what it is. It's part of the journey of life. And unfortunately, this year we've had this um, and so I haven't really taken a huge amount of time to sort of dwell um, negatively on the situation. Um, I just have just taken 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 it as, a, as an opportunity to do things that I wouldn't ordinarily have done. Um, so it's it has been tricky. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt um, no doubt about it. But um, you know, I've just been looking for solutions really. So when we went into lockdown, probably had a, a, a week or so where you know I think like like the rest of the country sort of sat there sort of twiddling our thumbs. Um, and spending some good quality time with the family, but it wasn't long until um, I started getting itchy feet and, uh, and, and sort of got back up the restaurant. Really, was working behind closed doors and improving things and strategizing things and, and, and just basically getting the ready, getting the restaurant ready for when it was to reopen. Um, and haven't really stopped stopped since, really. So, um, yeah, I've, I've, it, it, yeah, it's been challenging, but it hasn't it hasn't um, put me on my knees yet. Mm. that's certainly encouraging to hear that you've sort of tried to take the whole thing in your stride as it were and just keep going throughout all of this um even if we sort of fast forward maybe one or two years hopefully by which time COVID-19 is no longer an issue and we have for example a working vaccine do you think that yeah. some features that have come about in the hospitality sector during the lockdown period could become a permanent fixture of the way the sector works in this country <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, so I mean, if, if, I take, if we take the restaurant first of all, um, we if you take a Saturday night, which is, you know, is our main night of the week, um, we would be in you know, a 60 cover restaurant and we would be doing anything from between sort of 70 and sort of like 90 covers um, in, in the restaurant on a Saturday night. Um, and it would be quite a quite a stressful, um, quite a hard evening for both the staff and for the chefs. Um, and then we've, we've, you know, we've now come out with, you know, we, we're now in a situation where we've reduced the capacity of the restaurant down to about 50. There has to be plenty of time between the tables. What that's, what that's as a result done is it's slowed everything down. 
um, in the restaurant. And so, yes, we are only doing 50 covers, but we are much more careful. So we've got right through everything that we purchased. We've made sure that our margins are absolutely spot on. We're making sure that we're charging the right amount of money. Um, we, um, we, the, the food and the orders are coming to the kitchen in a much more manageable way. Um, and actually, our food and the quality of our service have uh, are probably the best that we've ever been. Um, and I think we, even when we come out of this, I think we'll probably keep, we'll stay the same and we'll focus more on the quality um, than we will on in bonus on food, just, you know, trying to take as much money as we possibly can. Um, we, you know, we didn't, the, the government dropped their... Um, the government dropped the VAT to 5%, obviously, as you all know. Um, there's a lot of restaurants, I think, particularly trains, that then pass that 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 um, reduction down to the customer, which I think was absolutely the wrong move. And it makes me actually quite angry, if you want me to be honest with you, when I see that done. But for, for me, the redu- reduction of VAT was for, for the businesses to help them, you know, to, to, to prompt them, give them a bit more strength um, over the coming months, given they've been closed for so long. So, um, we sort of took advantage of that and that's massively helped us for me it, it doesn't get a huge amount of headlines the VAT it was all to eat out help mm. out and things like that but for me that VAT really was um, a fantastic leg up um, for, for, for for the industry um, but like I say it also fills me with frustration because when I look at the likes of um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say names, but if I look at the likes of Greg's and Costco on the high street and I see that they passed on they passed on that percentage to the customer, so they reduce their sticky buns and their coffees, and they pass it on to the customer. And then two months later, they're announcing that they've got job losses and job cuts. And it makes me really frustrated. So I think myself, why didn't they just hold on to that extra fifteen percent and retain those members of staff? Um, and I just, yeah, I just think that just goes to show um, the aggressiveness of the big corporations um, and how they operate sometimes. Um, mm. But it- yeah, that's. Um, Sorry, no, it's interesting that you do uh, mention that actually, yeah, because some of the uh, the measures that um, Chancellor Rishi Sunak has uh, brought in have certainly come um, under a lot of uh, credit, um, I should say. Yeah, it's um, something that businesses have been really, really appreciative of during this time, and business has been essentially holding up its own part of the bargain by being reactive to the changing guidelines, changing circumstances, and doing its best. 100%. I mean, I don't think I'd be, I don't think I'd be. You know, um, having this conversation being quite as upbeat as I am at the moment without, you know, the measures that, that, that Rishi has, has, has taken. I mean, I, I have to take my hat off to him. I mean, um, yeah, he's done it today. He's done a fantastic job, an absolutely fantastic job. Considering that he was only essentially thrust into the Chancellor's job at the 11th hour as well before COVID-19 <laughs> hit with the um, the Cabinet reshuffle um, early in the year as well. It's uh, amazing, of course, what he's done in such a short space of time, a real show of leadership. And I'm sure that the experience will have taught him a lot as well. With regards to, yeah, no, definitely. With regards to that word, sort of teaching and learning as well, is there anything that sort of from a business leader's point of view that you've learned from this sort of crisis management experience, if we call it that? Um, I think it's just kind of reinforced really that you just have to evolve it's so important that you evolve so many I think so many businesses um, have you know have kind of energy and a lot of time um, sitting back and perhaps moaning about the situation um, and not really you know I'm, I literally coincidentally I just got off the phone just got off the phone from our wine supplier um, 
20 minutes, half an hour ago. Um, I placed an order. I was placing the order. The owner of the um, the company um, in the background said, I can have a quick word with Rob. And I, I spoke to him quickly and said hello. Um, and he said, uh, Rob, just want to say what a fantastic job you're doing on social media. Um, it's really good to see you know, real positive messages being put out there. And you know, as soon as the change come out with the 10 o'clock curfew, bang, you're on it, you're changing your opening hours, you're doing this, you're doing that. He said, you're the only person that I can see that's really doing that. And I find it a little bit frustrating um, that so many business owners do, you know, this might upset a few people, but do just sort of sit there and moan rather than actually putting up their socks and just cracking on with it. So, um, yeah, um, there we go. Yep, um, it is, of course, um, frustrating sometimes when you do see people not putting in quite as uh, much effort um, as well. And it is those businesses that do really strive to succeed um, that will really sort of reap the benefits over the course of the year, the next few months for sure. And just on that um, note as well, just for those sort of younger aspiring leaders that might be tuning into this podcast today, Rob, um, what message would you give them to really get them on the road to success based on your experience in business? Um, I think I think there's a huge amount of opportunity that's going to present itself now over the next couple of years as well. Um, I think we've always seen, haven't we, that whenever there's whenever there's a situation um, that, that has such a major impact on our society, that there's always opportunity. So I think there's a huge opportunity there. What that what that looks like, I you know I, I can't sort of put my finger on just now, but there will be. Um, but with regard, it's just hard work. I think you've just got to put in hard work. Um, you know, you can't you can't expect to have your own business um, and work nine to five. You have to you know, you have to put in the shift, you have to put in the hours, um, you have to work hard. Um, and I think that will eventually, and you have to take risks as well. It's so important to take risks. Um, if I, um, you know, I speak to my granddad and he, he thinks I'm absolutely mad for my own business. Um, you know, he's, a, he's very much a, 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 a guy that's sort of gone through his whole... Yeah, you know, with a you know working a nice steady job and with a pension, and I'm not saying there's anything there's wrong with that. Quite, we need that within our society. But if we're an entrepreneur, then we need to take risks and we need to take gambles, and we have to be prepared that sometimes these risks won't won't you know they won't pay off, and you know we might be in a harder place afterwards. But then you pull yourself back up and you you keep pushing off, keep pushing on, and eventually they will pay off. Um, so I think yeah, just taking risks and and working hard, and I think you'll be all right. I think that's very sound advice indeed. And just similar to that, um, leaders have had to really step up in all walks of life to be beacons of inspiration, motivation and hope during this time, just keep things ticking over. Um, But when it seems like so much is going against you and they do say it can be a little bit of a lonely place at the top sometimes, when you're in a leadership role doing all of the inspiring, but you need to find a bit of motivation of your own, where is it that you can go and look to for that, do you think? Um. I think you need to take a take a take a sort of. You, you can sometimes get so absorbed um, in it all, and then you, you end up not being able to see the wood for the trees. Um, and I think it's really important just to take some time out, um, even if it's just even if it's just a day, um, even if it's just a walk on your own or, or something like that. You just sometimes you just need to you know take a deep breath. Well, but you know. Sort of step away from the situation, have a couple of days, have a couple of days out, um, try try to sort of like, you know, regroup your thoughts um, and then and then sort of step step back into it. But also communicate, I mean, speak to, speak to, um, speak to your, who you're employing, speak to the team that you've got underneath you um, and try and get some of their feedback. It won't necessarily always be the best feedback, but certainly listening to them and talking to them will, will help. Um, but yeah, you just need to take some, you just need to take some time, otherwise it will just consume you. 
um, and just eat you up and, and yeah, have some family time and um, spend time, you know, with a wife or a girlfriend or whatever and just kind of try and escape it all, I think is, uh, is, is, is good advice mm. to try and get away from absolutely sometimes you do need to just take a step back and take stock of it all i'm absolutely right and just before we do wrap things up on the program rob just because i'm conscious that we are short of time i would like to discuss the future as well because um yeah. given the prime minister's announcement uh, last week just for the benefit of those tuning into this we are recording on the 30th of september 2020 so just last week the prime minister announced that there will be new national covid19 restrictions coming in to try and curb rising cases and it could well be that those restrictions are in place for another six months so with regards to this new normal, we know that that's going to be p- happening again for some time. We're going to have to keep adjusting in the way that we live, in the way that we work. But what is it that you're hoping to have achieved at your businesses um, over the course of this next 12 months? And where do you see yourselves being this time next year? So for me, the next 12 months is, is simply about head above water. That's it. I mean, you know, we're not looking to make a significant amount of money or anything at all like that. I mean, don't get me wrong, there will be businesses out there that will be, you know, in a position where they are taking advantage of the situation. But for me, um, it's just purely about keeping my head above water, making sure we keep an eye on the bottom line, making sure that we try to um, retain as many members of staff as we can, uh, because obviously that will help support the company, make sure that we follow the guidelines that are in place, um, whether we, you know, whether we have. Um, agree with them or we don't. Um, I uh, yeah, I, ju- I just think yeah. At the moment, we just need to we just need to kind of just all, all do our bit, keep our head above water, um, and just basically just just yeah, just sort of down and crack on for the next twelve months. And then in twelve months' time, um, depending on where we are, um, will be when we sort of you know maybe push on. But I do think the businesses that survive the next twelve months will will um, reap the reap the rewards hopefully um, thereafter. Let's certainly hope so. Um, it's going to be a challenging time for business, um, for sure, over the uh, the next few months. And we're all keeping our fingers crossed for the hospitality sector in particular, for sure, which has been really stricken by the impact of uh, this outbreak. And I actually think, Rob, um, just given how enlightening it's been having you join us to share some of your views today, I think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in the next year and have you back on the programme with us just to see how things are getting on. And hopefully there'll be some good news to share at that stage. Yeah, 100%. No problem. Yeah, we'd love to do that. I'd certainly welcome that opportunity. It's been a real pleasure welcoming you onto our show today. And most importantly, Rob, until we do hopefully speak again, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on as well. Yeah, you too. Thank you very much. Thanks for giving me in. Yeah, it's been nice. Thank you to six months on board. No problem. Certainly. And um, I'd also reiterate that last message there to every single one of our listeners tuning in. Do please continue to be considerate of others and look after yourselves because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. That is for sure. Um, Coming up next on the programme today, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. During his professional football career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for clubs including West Ham United and Stoke City, among others. But he remains most renowned for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have netted a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition. That, of course, came after his treble in England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have 
confidence and courage, obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. and. In that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. 
and that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. 
Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking 
the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of 
thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be 
substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand 
and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sukir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sukir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. 
Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.